Dotnet Rocks episode 970 with guest Burke Holland. Recorded Monday, April 7th, 2014. Thanks very much. Welcome back to Dotnet Rocks. Carl and Richard. And uh, what can we say? It's the Wednesday show here. Wednesday, Wednesday, Wednesday. It's our third show, our, yeah. our new third show. Yes, we like it that way. Well, it's really our second show of the week, but it's our added show. Yes. Your bonus .net rocks. There you go. Brought to you by Poi. An extra tasty edition. Tasty edition. What's new with you, man? Uh, you know, it's always good to record from home. A little sunshine, a little walk in the dog. Life is pretty good. I got some new gadgets. I'm What'd finally, I'm gearing up to switch the heating system over to Nest thermostats, which for me, because of the six zones, means I need a six zone controller that will take that kind of thermostat. And I found one. With the Nest uh, thermostats, do you have to phone home with those to some central server to let them know everything about your house? No, you don't actually. Well, so that's you, good. You set it up the way you want to. There's lots of choices there. I just like the idea of a thermostat with an IP address. In fact, I want everything in my house to have an IP address. That's very good. And yeah. a local IP address. Yes. Yeah. On your Wi-Fi. And they've actually um, stopped selling the Nest smoke alarm. Uh, smoke detector because there, yeah. there was a problem with the wave sensor on it, which I thought was really it was really good that they did that. Well, I guess you could disable it. Yeah. Well, that's what they've done. There's a software patch to disable it, but they're still not going to sell any more right. while they figure out the right way to solve this problem. Well, apparently while it's disabled, it doesn't work. And there's the problem, right? Right. Yeah. So you need to disable that wave feature because it's it, you know you the time you know there's only certain times in your life you're ever going to really need a smoke detector and mm. you really want to be sure it works then. Yep. The only time I don't like it is when I'm cooking bacon. There you go. <laughs> but it, it's the thing is I don't I like the wave things cute, but I'm perfectly happy to you know whip out my phone, connect to my smoke detector, and say shut up. Well, you know what? When there's a fire, you're waving your hands. Yes. So that's not very smart, is it? Well, they you, they they found a potential problem there. It never actually happened in the wild, and they yeah. chose to to take it really seriously. And for that, I I toast them. That's smart. I do agree. And yep. you, you got to be careful with this thing. We're talking about your life here, people's lives. Yeah, that's serious business. I didn't mean to make light of that. I'm sorry. Nope. All but right. I'm also, you know, I'm look when those things go back on sale, my th my existing CO2 and smoke detectors are hitting five years old, and that's when they start to be unreliable. So it's a good time to replace them. Yeah, I think I'm with you, buddy. All right. I'll do it. All right. So let's move on. Better know a framework. Awesome. Found a great blog today. In fact, um, I'm not sure if you would classify this as a blog or just a really, really good website where this guy put together some great Canvas tutorials for HTML5. Oh, nice. And it's simply uh, www.html5canvastutorials.com. Nice. So check this out. Um, all sorts of great stuff up here. You know, you get to see them live, of course, because they're in the browser. We're talking about, uh, a oh, I love the kaleidoscope tutorial and the bouncing oh, yeah. bunnies and just all sorts of very cool, sophisticated graphics things with the canvas. And hmm. you actually get the, like, the blur filter. How many people think about a blur filter in HTML? Yeah. There's a picture of Darth Vader and a slider, and as you move the slider in real time, it blurs it out. And the code's right there. And the code's right there, yeah. That's really interesting. Just very cool. And um, I like the oscillating blobs. That's also good for fun and 
having uh you know lava lamp parties and stuff well and i and you know the measure of a good website is always when you can do something very distasteful with it <laughs> exactly that's it there's a whole lot of, this is a whole lot of purple flashing text on grayscale things however there's lots and lots of very cool things again like a text path tutorial right yeah. kinetic javascript text path like um words around a path there's pages and pages and pages of this stuff so very cool and, nice. and this is my go-to page now for any time i want to do something very cool with uh, Canvas. Love it. Yeah. Good find, Bob. So there you go. HTML5 Canvas Tutorials.com. Know it, learn it, love it. Hey, man. Absolutely. Who's talking to us? Grabbed a comment off of show 927. Uh, going back a little ways there. That's the one we did with Mads Christensen, who I just saw at Build. When we were, uh, we saw him in Malmo when we were at Ordev and we talked about some of the stuff he's doing around web development, right? He's one of the program managers for the web development platform and a really, really nice guy. Hmm. And this comment comes from a fellow by the name of Tom Grozowski. And it took me time to find your name, Tom, because your handle here is TN Tomek and I don't know what the heck that is. How did you find his name? I just, you know, I use the interwebs. So <laughs> that's good. I figure a guy who used T and Tomek on his name in disgust and is, is probably the same guy on Twitter when they're both web developers commenting in a web development show. And you were right. Yeah, I hope so. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I called him by his wrong name entirely. I don't know. <laughs> but Tom says, you can tell a lot about a developer by their choice of tools and home site was awesome. Now, my first reaction is, okay, I got chills, but it reminded me that back when we were talking to Mads, we went over all those old development tools right. that we did, you know, the way we used to build it. Remember GeoCities? Oh, yeah. 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 So, you know, Tom's clearly of that era as well. Mm -hmm. In the day of the WYSIWYG editor, remember that was a thing? What you see is what you get. Yeah. I remember the WYSIWYG editor. I remember Lotus Ami Pro blowing me away with its what you see is what you get word processing. Yeah. But now we're talking about web. So he says, in the day of the WYSIWYG editor crap, like Dreamweaver and front page. Oh, boy. Here come the emails. There we go. It was a breath of fresh air. Mm -hmm. And it's great to hear people working in Visual Studio and all the tools teams remember that heritage. Yeah. That is a reason to care about the code, that clean code is important also, as long as you can make the design that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I'm glad Microsoft is moving in the right direction towards empowering the developer instead of hiding the implementation for the lowest common denominator. Yeah. There you go. Yep. So Tom's got a position, and then, and it's one I think we can all relate to as developers, is that you do want to own your code and, and, and you know have control over that, that all parts of your creation are important. Right. So, Tom, thanks so much for your comment. We're totally with you, and we also think Mads is awesome. Of course. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you, and if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or on any of our mobile apps. We've got them for Android, iOS, Windows Phone 7 and 8, and Windows 8, and those apps are built by Diatom Enterprises. We'd love to build you an app. Just go to DiatomEnterprises.com. And before we go any further, let me tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online with hundreds of hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and industry experts. They release over 40 courses every month and offer a 10-day free trial, giving you 200 minutes of access with a wide range of developer training courses and topics, including iOS, Java, Android, everything web, and anything and everything Microsoft, including lots of courses on SPA applications, single-page applications, and uh, all sorts of web goodness there. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And that brings us to Burke. Burke Holland is a web developer who hangs out in Nashville, Tennessee, 
even though he really doesn't care for country music. (laughs) He would not be alone. No comment. He's a recovering Adobe Flex developer and current JavaScript and HTML5 fanatic working as a developer evangelist for Kendo UI. You can find him blogging for Kendo UI and on his personal blog, A Shiny New Me. He hangs out on Twitter as at Burke Holland and avoids Facebook altogether. He has an obsession with Instagram and once updated everyone's last name in the corporate ERP database to Holland. He is not a fan of SQL. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, guys. All right. What's the story? Well, first of all, I'm... What's what's wrong with front page? Are we not no. supposed to be using that anymore? <laughs> All right, that's the end so, of that show. <laughs> you really are in the self-deprecation here. I just deployed to GeoCities. I don't see what the big deal is. Uh, <laughs> so when I got my start uh, working with databases, I worked with Oracle, and and in Oracle, of course, you have to uh, when once you write your statements, you have to you know explicitly commit them to the database. And I got a job at a healthcare company, and it was like my second or third day, and they were kind of setting me up with all the tools, and you know they were setting me up with enterprise manager, enterprise mangler, as we used to call it, and they said, <laughs> okay, now you're on a production instance, so don't you know be very very careful. Uh, and I was like, oh, so don't, you know, update like this. And I ran an update statement and they were like, no, I was like, hey, no worries. I'm just going to roll it back. <laughs> and of course, there's no rollback on SQL Server unless you explicitly, explicitly start, a transaction. Yeah, yeah, transaction. start a transaction. Yeah, I found that out the hard way. So, yeah. All 10,000 employees. <laughs> Suddenly we're named Holland. Well, yeah, inst- instantly leveled up in life. So you got to uh, you got a, a DevOps experience real quick then. Yeah, yeah I got the, to meet the CIO too. It was yeah, awesome. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> it was so good. Such a great first impression. Hey honey, today I got to meet the CIO. Yeah. <laughs> he said some bad words. Yeah. I got to go to his office and everything. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Good to see his office. In <laughs> <laughs> other news, I need a new job. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, have my, I have my own virtual private network now. I can just... <laughs> it broke me off. It's got one node. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, great story. You know how to make an impression. Oh. I try. Yeah. You did keep the job. I did. I was there for two and a half years. And, you know, eventually I was promoted to manager of development. So, you know, somebody somebody must have forgotten. Maybe all the infrastructure guys left. I can't remember. Wow. <laughs> you were the guy standing closest to the server when the last guy quit. Yeah, I must, yeah exactly. They <laughs> <laughs> looked at you. You're, you're next. You're up. Your you're turn. up. Huh. You're in command. Well, uh, you have some news for us. I do. Uh, we got some really exciting news. Um, today... We are announcing that um, Telerik is releasing its next generation of Flash UI widgets. We're excited about Flash. We think Flash is going to be real big. We've got them um, scoped for mobile. Both is amazing. No, I just, I completely just. And all seriousness, we, ha- we do have a big, exciting announcement today. And that is that the Kindle UI framework. Uh, now comes in a completely open source uh, core version called Kindo UI Core. Um, and when I say open source, I mean like Apache 2, 
full rights, fork it, change it, do whatever you want, submit pull requests. Uh, it's completely open source. Wow. That's big news. Hey, clap. It is huge. Clappers. Oh, claps. Thank you so much. Yes. Now, now, wait a second. So you say it comes in a flavor. Now, does that mean there is also another flavor that is not open source? Yes. Yeah, so we have the the core uh, flavor, if you will, includes all of the framework features, and mm-hmm. then it includes all of the widgets that you would expect to find in a, in a, in a JavaScript UI library that are common. So things like autocomplete, dropdown lists, numeric text box. And then we have some of the more complex widgets, which are like uh, more like solutions almost than they are widgets because you can really build entire applications with them. And those are like the grid or the scheduler or the tree view. And those are part of Kindle UI complete. Got it. It's a commercial package. Correct. Yeah. I see. But uh, so what you're doing, what you're doing is you're taking the foundation of uh, Kendo UI and open sourcing that for all to use. That is correct. And it actually includes, I think, like 24 widgets, um, including the MVVM support, the single page application wow. uh, structure, uh, routers and views and layouts, and the effects framework, validation, globalization. So it's not just the UI widgets. We've open sourced the, the stack as well for people that are actually... All right. So, so here's what I'd like you to do. Now, you may have gotten some people's attention with Kendo UI right now who had never thought of it before because they may have had to pay for it, right? So, for those who have had their head in a box for these few years that Kendo UI has been around, tell people, I mean, we understand that it's a web framework for building uh, out web pages, right? And web content. But tell us how exactly you would use this. Where does it live? So that's a great question. Um, Kendo UI at its most simple level is two CSS files and a JavaScript file and a jQuery dependency. And you drop that into your page and then you sort of select an element as we're used to doing, you know, dollar sign, the name of your, your ID of your div. And then you call a method on that to transform that into a widget. So anybody that's ever used jQuery UI before or any of this, uh, any jQuery UI widgets or plugins, this it's, that's how that works. And so if you want a date picker, you'd select your div with ID and call Kindo date picker mm. and you get a date picker. Um, now all of the widgets are from the very first, we wanted Kindo UI to be sort of a full stack front end framework for people so that it doesn't leave you lacking in anything because what we, what we saw in the beginning was when people were really moving things into the browsers that you would pull in a date picker from this site and you'd pull in an autocomplete from this site over here and then you'd, you'd sort of cherry pick an MVC framework and yeah. then you'd tack on an MVVM framework and then and then you had like 20 dependencies in the head of your page. Right. And some of these things work with each other and some don't. Right. Exactly. Um, and so we, we used to call that like Franken app, which yeah. is where you have this like name sort collisions of this, and all that kind of right, stuff. Right. This thing with like bolts in its neck and it's assembled and it kind of works, but you know, something's not, not right about it. So we wanted Kindle UI to really provide all of those things, but not force you to adopt the entire thing end to end. So that if you wanted to do a full single page application structure, you could. And if you wanted just a date picker, you could get that too. And you're not re- rewriting or reinventing the wheel on anything that jQuery does. You're utilizing all the stuff that jQuery does, right? That is, yeah, that is correct. You know, I think that we've seen two, two and a half years ago when we first started working on Kindle UI, of course, jQuery was hot. jQuery is on what, 80% of sites, some mm-hmm. ridiculous number. Of course, I don't have an actual figure to back that up. I just threw that out there as a yeah, yeah. fact. We'll just assume that's truth. Um, but <laughs> it's popular. Everybody sort of is very familiar with it. They get, you know, warm and fuzzies when they use jQuery and, 
And so we wanted it to feel familiar and we didn't want to reinvent that sort of like, what's it like to select an element? What's it like to do an Ajax call? You know, things people already felt very comfortable with. Right. So you're totally snuggling up to that. Now, what about, uh, what about some of the binding frameworks? And you said the MVVM stuff. Um, you know, a lot of people are using popular frameworks now. Uh, is there stuff that overlaps in Kendo UI or is there uh, adjacent things or were we going to be able to um, take advantage of those things in Kendo UI or do they just simply work side by side? Well, you have a couple of choices. The Kendo UI framework itself comes with its own implementation of the model view, view model pattern. Uh, and it's similar to Knockout. It's Knockout-esque, mm -hmm. if you will. Um, one of the one of the benefits of you know coming after some of these frameworks is that you honestly get to learn a lot um, when you're when you're rebuilding things. And we had the choice to go with Knockout at the time, um, but one of the things that we've tried to do with Kendo UI is reduce dependencies. Yeah, and that is because when you when you start to do that, then if if something changes in a library you don't have control over, then it makes it can make it very difficult to iterate. You know, yeah. very and introduce regressions and things like that. Well, and so, also you're held back, right? I mean, Angular has become the sort of the, the darling. And if you're stuck on knockout, then you're stuck on knockout. Uh, that, yeah, that's correct. And so we actually provide integrations, though, for people that want to use that. So uh, I don't know if you guys know Ryan Niemeyer, um, fantastic fellow up in the frozen tundra of Wisconsin, wrote the uh, Kendo knockout bindings for us, which is on labs.kendoui.com. For people that want to use knockout and they want to use Kendo UI, um, and the same thing with Angular. We have Angular UI as well, or Angular Kendo UI, which is at labs.kendoui.com. So just using Angular and Kendo UI by themselves separately, um, why would I need any kind of, uh, you know, connection there? Uh, well, you, so that's, people sometimes come to me and they say, what should I use? Like, which MVC framework should I use with Kendo UI? Right. And by MVC, I mean, you know, a front end MV star framework, right. whatever people are using in their browser. And my answer is always, well, you should probably use Kendo UI because it contains all of those elements. And I think there's a big misconception that people think that I, I need some sort of structuring framework and you do. But like I said, Kendo UI is a full stack. Now, if you want to use Angular and you, and, and it's been, Angular is a phenomenon because it's been so well received on both sides of the aisle, right? right? I mean, you have enterprise devs who've been really waiting for an opinionated framework that was like, this is how yeah. you should structure things. And then you have the hipsters, you know, with their super tight jeans that are like, <laughs> you know, we like Angular too. And so we're sort of like, are finding this common ground in JavaScript that we haven't ever found before. And so we provided a set of integrations so that you can structure your app with Angular. You can use its binding, which is there you gorgeous. Go. Yeah. So that's that's what I'm after. So you can use Angular's binding with your controls, then widgets, no problem. Correct. Yeah. If you're just looking at, for Kindle UI to provide you a UI for Angular, no, no, no problem. You can totally. Yeah, you can do that. Absolutely. It's all standard stuff. Yes. Wow, that's great. Yeah, it's we're really excited about it. Um, we've actually been working on this for about two years now. I remember when we actually released the beta of Kindle UI and I was in Sophia and the engineering lead looked at me and said, do you think that we should put this on GitHub and just make it open source? And I thought, yeah, that would be awesome. But it took sort of two years of, you know, changing company culture really and talking to the right people and sort of, you know, measuring the landscape to decide, you know, that this is really what we want to do. And it's, it's the right thing for the community. I think what we've learned in the past two years is that people come to Telerik for a solutions and for a relationship. So they don't really come to us for a date picker, yeah. um, especially not in the JavaScript world because they're everywhere. 
So if they want a date picker, they'll just go get a date picker. They really come to us for um, some of these more complex professional controls and then for the support and the relationship that Telerik provides. And Telerik's been around for 10 years and will be here 10 years from now. Um, and so it's it benefits both sides if we can take these essential core elements, which don't really um, constitute something that people may necessarily um, make a spend on in terms of capital expenditures of the Kindle UI size um, and make those open source and available to everybody and then have the professional developers who actually need that relationship still have that available for them as well. And jQuery mobile and Kendo UI mobile, are they, are these, is this a different product? Is this also open source or is this part of Kendo UI? Ah, oh, such a great question. Kendo UI mobile is also open source today. We're announcing that as well. And that's included in Kendo UI core. So the entire Kendo UI mobile stack is being open sourced today. You can get it completely free at github.com slash Telerik slash Kendo. Wow. It comes. Yes, yes, we're excited about that too. It comes as part of Kindle UI Core, so it's all in there. You get all of the core widgets, and you get all of the mobile widgets as well. And if people go to that to that repo, that GitHub.com slash Telerik slash Kindle, you'll see a table in there which lists out. You know, it's got three columns: like core, professional, and then the wrapper suites. And it tells you exactly what widgets is in each suite, so that you can know exactly what you need. Well, the coolest thing I found with the mobile, especially, is uh, the ability, they, what device it runs on, it looks differently. So you run it on, a, on an iPhone, it looks like iPhone controls. You run it on a Android, it looks like Android controls. Yeah, the adaptive rendering framework has been really well received. And it's so interesting because when we first did that, I wasn't even sure if that was a good idea or not. But the community really, really likes that. Um, a lot of people have used that in conjunction with the, uh, the Telerik platform, right. which is the new uh, development platform for building mobile apps. Cordova-based. Cordova-based, correct. PhoneGap-based, uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And have been writing these cross-platform apps and getting a different look and feel uh, per the device. And I think that sometimes you don't realize it until you get into these like esoteric UX discussions about where buttons should be on iOS or Android because Android has soft buttons at the bottom and iOS does not, right? So Android then moves the buttons to the top of the screen so that your thumb doesn't accidentally hit that little back button, which takes you back to the home screen or whatever that does on Android. You know, I, I get into these same conversations with the, the esoteric folks in the, the studio business, you know, in the recording that people are more stuck on the sort of the semantics of recording than they are, you know, what... What, what, what is the music all about? You know, in other words, what does your app do? I think it is a, a little bit more important than, you know, where's the button? You know exactly. what I'm saying? It's like, you know, people are stuck on microphones and everything and then, you know, preamps and all that stuff. It's like, okay, what room are you recording in? You know, where, <laughs> where, where are you placing the microphone? That has so much more to do with the sound that you're getting than what preamp you're using. Right. There's so much, there's so much other stuff that you need to do before you get to, to preamp. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so it is with the semantics of, of this stuff, right? You know, it's like, let's, let's worry about, you know, is this a good app? You know what I'm saying? I, I totally do. And we were actually, we saw that question asked a lot last year. Like people would say, the question became, um, what should I use to build my mobile app? And we would, we would think for a minute, we we're like, well, What's your mobile what app? The, what does your app do? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what exactly does it do? You know, well, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, um, B2P or whatever. I don't, I always get those acronyms wrong, right? It's going to go right. in the app store and users are going to download it and it's a game. Well, then you probably want to write that in native. Yeah. Right. right or Unity. 
Right, exactly. As opposed to, um, while it's a grid of uh, read-only data that um, I'm delivering to, you know, my managers on the on the stockroom floor. Right. Well, that would be a perfect as a hybrid app because you can throw that together in about an hour and a half mm. uh, and deploy it and, and be done with it. So it's kind of two different things for, you know, the right tool for the right job. Right, right. Well, in the, in the growth area I've been seeing massively for mobile apps now is the B2C story. Is the I have customers who want to interact with me via their phone, and how do I make that a painless experience and cover all the phones? Mm. Right. Yep. And I think that we, you know, Miguel um, de Casa, I probably butchered his last name. I'm sorry, Miguel. Um, he tweeted recently, I guess when he did a Xamarin session at Build, now, granted, we have a skewed audience here, but they had a third iPhone, a third Android, and a third Windows phone. So, I mean, if you, even if you just take that cross-section, you're talking about three major platforms with three totally different languages, frameworks, and, and essentially UX paradigms as well. Yes. And that's the largest concentration of wind phones in the world. Right, right. <laughs> For sure. But... You know, it's we definitely have a disruption here and the problem of, you know, do am I going to write this thing three times? Because we've never had to do that before. That's crazy. Um, we've just said, no, we're going to use this will be the platform that we use and we're going to write it in VB6 and everybody's going to use it. And it's going to work and it does. Well, the last time it was like that was the 80s. Mm. You know, that was the Apple II Atari ST Commodore 64 IBM PC world. You know, like That's- it was... That's when it was that fragmented. And that's when Microsoft did stuff like multi-plan, you know, before Excel, that was their spreadsheet and it ran across all those platforms. And in fact, they did a cross-compile approach to it. So that it ran badly on all of those platforms. <laughs> I, didn't they have the same approach to Internet Explorer at one point? I think they were like the first one to have a browser that was cross-platform. Yeah. And it wasn't good, but it's, that's just the battle is can you, when you do your cross-plat thing, can you not make the customer suffer for it? Right. Because customer only has one platform. Cross-plat helps you. It doesn't help your customer. Yes, correct. And I think the other thing to note is that customers do not care whether or not your application is native or hybrid or made out of bailing wire bubblegum. Yeah. They don't care. What they care is whether or not your app does what it says it's going to do. Right. And if it, if it does, then they're generally happy. If it does not, that leads to many one-star reviews in the app store and many yeah. But I think we've just sort of lost sight as a development community in the past couple of years, scrambling, trying to make the fanciest apps of like having apps that actually, you know, what does our app do? And then let's make it and test it and build it and deploy it. You know, SDLC. I think we're still trying to get over the gold rush effect. Yes. You know, Apple kicked off this gold rush where a small team of people could make real money building software for the iPhone. And the quality of your soft, and then, you know, as those apps started to fill in and there was more and more of them, you, you know, how do you, how does your version of the iFart app be more successful than the other one? And part right. of that was, you know, you take it most advantage of your phone as you possibly can. Native, 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 native. But I think that gold rush is over. There's a million apps in the iPhone store. That's a disaster in my mind. I, I totally agree. Although we do have these apps that keep showing up and breaking the mold, right? Like Flappy Birds comes in and I don't know right. if you guys ever, did you guys even play that game? Nope. Saw a couple of videos about it. Don't have any need to play it. Don't oh have an gosh. iPhone anyway. I still have it. It's, and it's just, it's so, uh, it's so amazingly bad that it's, <laughs> that it's wonderfully good. I don't know how else to put it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have apps like that, apps like WhatsApp, right? I think if Facebook buys WhatsApp for 19 billion and Oculus right. for right. like what? 
uh, three billion. Three. Thank you. <laughs> so, so virtual reality technology is worth, you know, I don't know, you know, one ninth of a message. Yeah. Well, it's the difference right. between having 500 million customers and 50. Right. Exactly. <laughs> absolutely. A billion here, a billion there. Pretty soon you're talking about real money. Right. <laughs> and I think for the enterprise, especially, you know, the enterprise has kind of been, you know, it's caught in the middle, right? Like a lot of enterprises don't have B2C apps. They have internal apps and apps that get the, you know, run the business every day. Right. And so they've adopted these bring your own device to work policies. And so now everybody has, you know, whatever phone they feel most, you know, religiously associated with, but they don't, they had, nobody's really answered the question of, okay, now how do you create an app and, and build that and deploy it to these multiple devices and then manage that app and um, run analytics on that application and provide data stores to that application like how are you going to manage this whole new section and that's really what the Telerik platform is is trying to do well richard you know what time it is now uh it must be that happy time again yep time to screw in a couple widgets tweak their nipples send it up the app store and watch the cash roll in Oh, jeez. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeehaw! That's not right. No, it's time to give away a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, let me tell you about the Telerik platform. Create compelling app experiences across any screen with the Telerik platform. Telerik's end-to-end platform uniquely combines industry-leading UI tools with cloud services to simplify the entire app development lifecycle. Telerik offers everything .NET developers need to build quality apps faster. Try it for free now at Telerik.com slash platform. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Awesome, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Rex Zulfikar. Congratulations, Rex. Yeah, Rex. Golf clap for you, sir. From Lake Ronkonkoma, New York. Yeah. Ronkonkoma. All right. Ronkonkoma. Well, you, you know, there's more to New York than just New York City. Lake Ronkonkoma. <laughs> for sure. There's a song about that. Lake Ronkonkoma. Oh, well. <laughs> it's probably a country song. Probably. <laughs> probably. There is now. I left my heart in Lake Ronkonkoma. There you go. Congratulations, Rex. He just won Telerik's DevCraft Complete Collection. That's everything that, uh, just about everything Telerik does in one box, the $2,000 value. And hey, if you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. Every show we give away stuff, good stuff, like the Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection. And every December we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And, uh, hey, you know what? We got pictures from Andy Smith. Yeah, yeah. We got to put those up. For sure. All right. We're going to link those in this show. That development rig that we built for him. That's right. So Andy Smith was uh, our second winner, and he took finally got it all together. He took pictures of his development rig uh, that we put together for him. He won the fight. He was a $5,000 winner last year. Uh, so we'll have pictures of that, and uh, we'd like to ask our guests, Burke, if you had five grand to spend right now on technology, sir, what would you buy? And I know we probably can't find the entire Slim Whitman catalog, but we could probably <laughs> locate it on Craigslist, but it might be a little more expensive than $5,000. I would buy 500 Kindle Fire TVs. 
And, you like uh, the Kindle Fire TV, huh? I, I don't know. It looks like an Apple TV, like a Roku, yeah. like a streaming device. I, you know what? I would buy one and I would just hand them out as if I were the Santa Claus of, <laughs> of streaming media. So the complaint I've seen with it, I mean, the whole idea behind this thing, and it's a good idea, is that you could bring all the different sources that you have for television, whether that's cable or Netflix or Hulu or whatever else, and of course, Amazon Prime. And it's the bridge for all of that. So then you can search on a show. So you just say, hey, I want to see the Avengers. And it's supposed to go through your catalog of what access you have to give you the least expensive way to go. But the complaint has been that it always directs you back to Amazon Prime. Hmm. Right. Which is now more expensive than it was before. Yeah. And the Amazon Prime's price has gone up. But it's like, hey, this show is freely available on Netflix. Yet when I search for it, you offer to sell it to me for five bucks on Amazon Prime. Thanks for that. Right. Stay classy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I see what you did there. See what yeah. I did there? But isn't this the conflict of interest, right? Mm. Yeah. That, that you know, because they also sell the content, being a content bridge is a problem. Well, you can always search yourself, you know? Yeah. It, it is a problem, though, that they're trying to solve, you know? I mean, I, I can totally see that because I have that problem, too, where I see something on iTunes and like, 40 bucks for season one of Game of Thrones? Like, that's that seems high. That's a you know, lot. A, yeah, exactly. And, that's you know, Apple and then you pricing. Go, right, exactly. And then you go look around, right? So you got your laptop open and you got your iPad up and you're like hollering at somebody in the other room to go check somewhere else. And I don't know. We need some disruption in that area. Oh, I just bought one. We're, we're, uh, Nixon cable. And we found out that the only reason we had cable in the house was because one of the kids really liked a particular show, right? A show. And that's why yep. we had cable and, you know, a hundred bucks a month, basically. Yep. And the kids stopped watching that show, and it's like, well, why do we have this again? So uh, now they, the kid gets uh, that show off online, and uh, we're, we're just getting rid of it. Did you guys, I know we're totally off topic here, but this is interesting to me. Did you guys see the memo or the article that Reed Hastings wrote about the bandwidth issues with the carriers? and, yeah, and how Net neutrality? Yes, net neutrality. Thank you very much. Yeah. Fascinating article. I mm -hmm. had no idea that all that was going on behind the scenes, but I heard a uh, sh I heard an episode of Planet Money where they talked about uh everything that happened, you know, w everything that happens when you order up a Netflix uh uh show and uh you know the difference between the the cable company uh, the you know the internet service provider and then where Netflix takes over and how they sort of make deals for bandwidth. In those well, they say, like, at, at peak times, you know, at 6 o'clock in the evening in the U.S., Netflix is 20% of the overall bandwidth of the internet. Like, it's catastrophic how large that number is. Yeah. Yeah. But you can really see how, it, I, and I noticed, used to notice this before, um, it, where you would, like, Netflix would work fine, but you would be trying to do something else, and it would be very, very slow for some reason, you know? And I never realized it's because not everybody is getting the same slice of bandwidth, right? Right. Mm. Like some people are, are more important on the internet than some other people. And so <laughs> you may not get what you think you're getting, yeah. Netflix's whole business model is dependent on how good your internet connection is. So everything they can do to make it better is important. Yeah, absolutely. That being said, everybody's afraid of net neutrality, losing net neutrality for a reason. That's a pretty big deal. Yeah, and I think it's, I think it's really, really important because... You know, you, if once once you don't have that, then you're really getting pushed into a certain direction. It may not be the direction you want to go. Well, it's that subtle thing. You can't see the fact that, you know, there are natural tendencies to go where sites are fast. And so they could start shaping opinion. Like you thought you thought Murdoch was scary with what he was doing with press. 
you know, wait till it's Comcast or Verizon shaping what sites are fast or slow mm. to your phone or to your or to your desktop. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Plus, you know, that squashes, you know, capitalism to a degree for anybody that wants to come in and disrupt the market. Yep. Anytime somebody's owning all of something, it's a good chance for somebody to come in and do it better and differently. Sure. Yeah. Incumbents defend their turf. That's right. And they defend it with regulation. That's right. With with government. Yeah. It's, that's, it's pretty frightening. So, uh, and, and for better or worse, you know, Reed Hastings is in on this because he is effectively the incumbent and he needs to make a deal. Yeah, they are paying the fees, so. Yep. I mean, I, I like that he's speaking out about it, but still. Yeah, do at least do it in the light. Yes. Well, you know, when underdogs become incumbents and it just keeps going and going, you know? Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, the, 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 the little guy becomes the big guy becomes the little guy becomes the big guy. It's just a cycle. It is. It's a circle of life. Yeah, but it's a circle that a lot of people are fighting against, right? You know, Mickey's still on top. Mickey, the copyright on Mickey Mouse continues to alter copyright laws. It has for a better part of a hundred years. Hmm. So, you know, we need we need to at least be aware that some of the stresses are going on here. So, where are we going with mobile development? Oh man, that's such a great question. Where are we headed? Yeah, I think just before the break, you you rattled off I think a really important list of what it takes for. A developer to be building a mobile app to date, you know, not just what language you're programming in, but the rest of the infrastructure, like the instrumentation side. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that we're still sort of the next big leap for mobile is to help the enterprise really move into that space. I feel like, and I spent, you know, eight, nine years in retail and healthcare. So I was there when it happened. And I'm still in touch with a lot of those folks. And, and a lot of enterprises are still waiting, kind of, you know, they want to make a move, but they're not sure. And maybe some have bought Macs and they're sort of tinkering around. And, you know, the Xamarin stuff has been huge. And a lot of people are, are using that, especially in the .NET world where those things feel very familiar. But I think the big thing for the enterprises is like, how do we tie this into our software development lifecycle, right? We have these, we have TFS, we have, Visual Studio, we have these defined workflows. How do we make these things that we have work to build mobile apps so that we're not in buying Macs and installing Xcode and using Jenkins and Travis and GitHub and a bunch of other things that we don't really feel that comfortable with? Um, and so I think we're looking for in the enterprise really a platform to come in and say, you know, use, use what you need. So maybe you need, um, you know, maybe you're building PhoneGap applications or you're building Xamarin applications and you need a way to test those and you need plugins for your application for Xamarin or for PhoneGap. Um, and you need a, a build service. So you need to be able, you don't own a Mac. You don't want to be responsible for the build. Wouldn't it be great if you could just send it off to an API and have that API return you your built application, right? Sub-second. Um, and to be able to test those things if you need to test it, maybe put analytics in. I remember the way we used to do analytics was we just logged everything into a server and then we would go back later and like try to piece it back together and be like, well, we think <laughs> this page is being used because there's only 14 rows in the database. Yeah, but you, you only sift through that after the app is crashing. You're trying to figure out who to blame. Right. Right. Once the <laughs> chief marketing officer calls up and says, hey, right. So in being proactive, you know, and we're really getting a lot better about that stuff. But still, especially in the area of mobile, um, we haven't we haven't seen that sort of end to end story where we can adopt a platform and really have something that takes us all the way through the life cycle. But um, we think that, you know, we really feel like the Telerik platform is unique because it sort of doesn't say that you should do hybrid or you should do native or you should do cross-compile like Xamarin. It says 
use which one you feel the most comfortable with or which one you know best fits your infrastructure. And then if you need UI controls, Telerik's got a long history of being the most gorgeous UI controls there are. Um, if you need backend services, use Azure or use the Telerik platform. We have backend services as well. You know, use our testing or don't, right? Use the things that you need, just the pieces that you need to make your app successful. Do you see instrumentation as optional these days? Because I'm sure feeling like you can't build an app without having automated feedback. No, I, I think that those days are over, right? Especially going forward. Like you can't, the days of people calling up and demanding certain features to be changed or replaced or added and removed are, are over. You, you really need to know um, what's actually happening in your application, right? Like you, nobody would stick a website up and then say, I have no idea how many visitors I'm getting. That would be absurd. Uh, and so we've kind of got to the same place in mobile app, in our desktop and mobile applications where we're like, we wouldn't do that to a website. So why would we do that to our actual apps? We need, we need more uh, visibility into what's happening in the application. And I hate to just drill on the phone here too, because I think I'm, I'm still wrestling with where a tablet fits in the equation for a lot of enterprises. Is it just a big mobile device or is it a small desktop device? Oh, man. You know, it doesn't seem that mobile. No, it really doesn't, does it? I mean, it, it's it's sort of like a, a convenient PC that you use in your office when you don't feel like touching a keyboard. Right. It's it's your Starbucks machine. Yeah. Nice. Or your or your I'm in bed machine. I I use my iPad when I'm laying in bed all the time. I don't want to get my laptop out. I don't want to open it. I just but I don't want to be on my phone because then I feel like a you know a tweener, like texting my friends. I feel like I need something bigger than that. I think that's where the tablet fits in. That's just your eyesight's going. It is. I tell you what. <laughs> I'm not as pretty all as I All of our eyesight's going, that's my friend. all our eyesight's going. It's true. Yours too, my friend. Yeah, mine too. I'm wearing my progressive thanks. You know, it's bad when you open Sublime Text and you immediately like, you know, enlarge, 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 enlarge. Yeah, <laughs> like turn 20. that font up. Right. I remember being a young guy and walking by people's cubes, you know, that had like the, you know, they had their resolution at like 800 by 600. And I'm like, what the heck is wrong with you? And now that's me. That's me. I'm that guy. I caught Richard squinting the other day. Oh, no, you caught me better than that. My 3200 <laughs> by 1800 display had had abandoned me and was doing completely native resolution. So it was minuscule. And the easiest way for me to see it was to lift my glasses off my face and stick my eyes right up to that screen. That was so funny. You were peeing yourself. That's <laughs> like, you're an old man. <laughs> you are that guy. Yep. Well, we have remote desktop on those super high uh, DPI screens uh, as a problem. There's a thing called the remote desktop manager that does a better job, just, you know, as an aside. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but I want to swing back on this a bit because I do think that it depends on the kind of app you're building as to the, this tool suite. Like, I was never, I always thought that the, the phone gap had the name gap for a reason. Right. It was just filling a gap until a web development took over everything. And now it doesn't feel like it's going to go away because this idea of one code base, all phones get updated as apps seems useful for B2C type apps or for internal apps. Oh, it, and it, it really is, especially when you're trying to keep things internal. And I think that a lot of times we have this idea. I, first of all, I think there's a, a, you brought up a good point that there's sort of a misconception. When we talk about an app, we're like, oh, that's something that I install from the app store. 
Well, right. not necessarily, right? Like web apps are just as much an app as the app on your phone is. Maybe it doesn't have as much device access, but doesn't need it. I mean, apps and responsive apps are web apps and responsive apps rather are still a low cost, low cost, huge, broad reach strategy for building mobile apps. And that's just utilizing a web browser. Right. So I think, you know, we do need to sort of back up and say, you know, do I even need an app or would a mobile website or a responsive site using Kindle UI core, of course, be the right choice for my application? Well, I just read a piece by Chris Dixon, who's just one of those writers I really appreciate where he, he talks about, I'll, and I'll include a link to the show because it's well worth it. It's on Chris Dixon's blog where he talks about the decline of the mobile web. And what he's saying is like apps are winning on the phone. And the web just doesn't seem to be having any traction that, that the guys that are want to build software for phones value their customers using apps much higher than the ones that are using the mobile web. And they're putting their energy into that development more than they're putting in the mobile web. And, and mostly what happens when you hit their mobile website, and we're guilty of this too, although we're at least not obnoxious of it. The very first thing that happens when you hit the mobile website is it tells you there's an app available. Yeah. And there's even a meta tag that's included that Apple includes to let you do that, right? Like they're right. encouraging this this behavior. But the dominance of apps, he's like, yeah, I'm just looking at his his post here, right? Eighty in 2014, they expect 86 percent of the time spent on a mobile device of any kind of app, 86 percent of it will be an app, not mobile web. Yeah, I don't know if I buy that number, but it speaks to sort of a, a keep aspect of this that people seem the the guys building software rather build an app that build a mobile website yeah you know i've often wondered if users can tell the difference i mean when i say users i mean people don't spend their days talking and working with technology can even tell the difference between a web app and a native app and the reason i say that is because i'll catch my wife on her phone and she'll be on facebook but she'll be on the facebook sites because she got a link there or something and she cannot tell the difference between the facebook site and the facebook app i kid you not and i don't know if that's just her or if that's more universal right like are we thinking about this too much that users don't really care that much one way or the other as long as the thing works and maybe that's the bigger issue here is that mobile websites are unreliable depending on which device you're on. Yeah, I definitely think that they feel less responsive than native apps. Of course, the native app, all your code's being loaded locally. Um, you can handle offline a whole lot better and more gracefully. And that's sort of the questions you have to ask, right? Do, do I need offline? Is that important to me? If it's not, then you know, native, maybe native's not your best bet. But if it is highly important, then you know, possibly you should look at building a native app and investing resources in that area. Well, and, and you know, you've been through this experience of I go to hit a I go to hit a web page on my phone in an airport, and it's auto connected to the Wi-Fi, but I haven't clicked the accept button yet, and so the web page just doesn't work. Right, exactly. Where at least an app fails elegantly. Right, right, and but most people don't know that they can go like open a different tab and refresh the page and try to trigger the router to come in with the accept page. You know, I don't know how many people don't you know, miss out on connectivity because there's this like extra hidden step in there. Right. And so we always get back to this experience that the regular mortal, the only way they know they're on a mobile site is it didn't work properly. Right. The app seems to work because at least it fails elegantly in that inconsistent state that all phone apps seem to be. You at least have a better chance for it to survive. Yeah, I agree. And I think that also people are familiar with that whole loading bar going across the top and they know when it stops and doesn't go anywhere. They're like, oh, crap. 
Move and, on. And yeah, and I'm guilty of this too, right? Like I'll go to a site and it'll like I've been to Twitter before where the site won't load and I'll be like, I'm just gonna open the app. But yep. for some reason in my mind, it seems like the next logical step is for me to then to open their application. Right. Just because it's faster or perceived faster. Exactly. And that application could be hybrid. It's not. But you could have a hybrid application, but nobody's nobody's gonna care or no. They're just gonna expect it to be working when the web isn't. But I also think that, you know, when a browser caches a response and pulls up a page, even though it's not actually connected properly, that annoys you. When an app does it, that's good. Right. Yeah, that's what it should do. When the web does it, you're like, that's old. That's weird. (laughs) Right. And it makes me sad. I'm not fooled by you. Right. (laughs) Yeah. It really is a perceptive issue. And I think it's going to keep coming back to that. Yeah, you know, the other piece of this that I think we just skipped by because we we talked briefly about how we're using tablets. We talked about using it in the bed and so forth. When does the regular developer using this stack start building tablet apps for their business? I, I think now, you know, we've had uh, tablet-specific widgets in Kindle UI Mobile, which is now part of Open Source Core since... I think like the second release, right? So you have things like the split view and the popovers and certain UX paradigms that work on tablets that don't necessarily work on phones. Um, and we've actually made these widgets adaptive now so that the split view adapts on uh, a mobile device to come like become like a sliding drawer. And so what we're looking nice. for here is what we can call an adaptive development experience where you're starting at the desktop and you're moving to a tablet and then you're moving to a device and you're getting an experience that sort of adapts as you go down. We tend to think of that as responsive web development, but I think a better term is adaptive web development. Interesting. And, and how do you define, I mean, responsive, I think people know that it's just the controls change, picture change size, you keep the thing working. What's the distinction with an adaptive? With an adaptive, you begin to take advantage of the features that are on the device. So right. you're, you may not have access to contacts on a laptop, but you do on on a device, right? So if it's there, let's use it. Devices are a whole lot more capable and interactive in a lot of ways than our desktops are, or they sure know a lot more about us. They're a lot more personal. And we can, and we can really tailor our experiences to tie into that. And of course, I'm not the first one to think of this. I'm just regurgitating no. things that I've read on the internet from folks like Brad Frost and those others. But you're still battling the distinction then. Like, why wouldn't you just do that on your desktop machine too? Like, it's still, I'm still wrestling with show me the definitive enterprise tablet app that replaced something off a desktop and did a better job. Yeah. And in the enterprise, I think we're mostly talking about dashboards, especially when it comes to tablets, right? Like um, show me my charts and graphs, um, show me my data. I want to be able to see it. I want to be able to interact with it with my fingers. Yeah. I also like the collaborative angle. We bring two of these things together and we can interchange data sort of visually or with four or five of us sitting around the boardroom, each with a tablet and a screen up at the end of the room and we're contributing to stuff like that seems like a really cool thing yet to see that out. Well, and that's the thing that iPads have never really done well, right? Like regardless of the hype, we still don't compose content on tablets very often. No, or share content or any of those things, really. Right, right. We just, we just, it's just a consumption device. Yeah. And so I, and I've done this myself. I don't know if you guys have done this where you're writing a long email and you're like, da da da, and you're like, God damn it. And you just put it down and you pick up your laptop and you start all over because it's just not worth it. Right. Yeah. You're like t- 20 mistakes and you know, you're, it's just ridiculous. So I think you're right. I, and I don't know what the answer there is. I think that we're still, and isn't this where Windows 8 is trying to sort of, come in and say, no, you can have this experience that's multi-touch, um, but you can also then flip it open like on my yoga and begin to use the keyboard if that's where you need to go. Yeah. 
But you know, I, I have a monster machine, the, the 4960 by 1600 display, and there are certain classes of work where I'm like, I'm not doing this until I can get to my epic amount of screen space so that I can actually spread out and see what's going on. Yeah, that's the other thing. Yeah. The reduced screen sizes. You know, I've got a Thunderbolt display and I'm the same way myself. Sometimes I'm like, you know what? I'm not touching this until I can have four windows open at the same time and then I can knock this out in like yeah. know, a tenth. And, and it's so and you know it's so much more productive. Right? When I can have all that side by side and can see it all at once, take in the gestalt and do the whole thing in an hour, or I could fight with it on this little screen for the whole day and probably yeah. do a poorer job. Right, exactly. I might yeah. get it done, but then it's going to say sent for my mobile device at the bottom and everybody's going to know I hacked it together on my iPhone. <laughs> yeah, when it's sent by my mobile device means I did a half-assed job. Right. I don't care about you enough to get on an actual <laughs> computer to answer <laughs> you. <laughs> That's what that means. That's the new signature in emails. That's dark. Dark, dark, dark. <laughs> well, Burke, I think that's about it. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about with us today? Uh, no, I appreciate you guys having me on and we would love to see people's pull requests. And from the bottom of our hearts, those of us that have worked on Kindo UI for the past, you know, two plus years and the engineers as well. We hope that people um, get a lot of use out of Kindo UI and those that, you know, couldn't afford to get a license before will um, find this open source offering more than meeting their needs. Um, and again, we'd love to see your pull requests, your stars, your forks on GitHub. And uh, we love you. We love you too, Burke. And Telerik. Thanks so much. And Kendo UI. Thanks. <laughs> you guys are awesome. Thank you. <laughs> All right. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a